Today's reading is 2 Corinthians 3, 1 through 18. This is the word of the Lord. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. For the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. All right, thanks, Janie. Well, we are continuing in 2 Corinthians, uh, as we'll continue to do for the rest of the semester, the next few months. Um, and, and throughout 2 Corinthians, you're going to notice uh, a measure of frustration that, that Paul has with the Corinthians. If you remember a few weeks ago, uh, there was an issue where the Corinthians were frustrated with Paul. They felt like he was wishy-washy because he said he was going to come to them, but then he he didn't, at least not like they thought that he was going to come to them, but he came later. And so he was trying to iron out that detail with them later. Uh, And and we're going to see throughout the book, there's going to be this idea of uh, the Corinthians have these other teachers that they kind of think are better than Paul or esteem higher than Paul. And and we're going to come up with that like a, a few different places throughout this letter. Um, but, but on this issue, uh, right here, there's this issue of a, a letter of recommendation where Paul is asking them about, and, and he does a, a bit of a jujitsu move. And I, I might be totally wrong with what jujitsu is, but here's at least one element that I think is included in that. It's when you use your opponent's momentum kind of against them, like they try to punch you, you grab their arm and you throw them down. Maybe that's jujitsu, maybe it's not, but that's what I think he's doing. Um, and so anyway, so what they're doing is, is, is they're saying that, hey, th- there needs to be a letter of re- recommendation. And what Paul says is that there's something better 
than a letter of recommendation for them or even from them. And he says that there's a letter written on their hearts. And that's the letter that he wants to talk about. In verse 3, he says this, And you show that you are a letter from Christ delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. So Paul is saying there's something written on their hearts by the Holy Spirit. And he contrasts that with God's law, which would be written on tablets. Think about Moses at Sinai receiving the law on tablets of stone. And then the last part in verse 6, he says this. He says, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And, and here's what I want to do today. I want to figure out what Paul meant by that. The letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. And in order to understand what Paul meant by that, we need to understand the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And, and as we go through this text, I want you to be suspicious about yourself with, with something. I want you to wonder this. Am I living as if I'm under the Old Covenant? Now, you might be thinking, Kevin, that's a bad idea because I don't know what the Old Covenant is. And as I kind of push this out, begin to think, as I describe what it is, begin to wonder and be even a little bit suspicious. Maybe I live as if I'm under the Old Covenant and not the New. So uh, let's try to figure this out. My, my two points kind of hinge on verse 6. The letter kills and the Spirit gives life. That's point number one, the letter kills. Number two, the Spirit gives life. So number one, the letter kills. So what did Paul mean when he said the letter kills? Well, he's referring to God's law. And, and it's easy for Christians to, to misunderstand the law. The, the, the Reformed tradition, which, which we mostly identify with, has often referred to the law in three different terms. There's, there's three different uses of the law you might have heard before. So uh, I'll just go through one, two, three. So the first use of the law shows us that God is holy and that we are sinners. And we need the law to show us our need for our Savior. So that's the first use of the law, to show us that God is holy and that we are sinners. The second use of the law is for civil use, to, to restrain evil in society. And then the third use of the law was, was a moral use, or some call it the normative use of the law. And it simply shows us what pleases God and instructs us how to live as followers of God. So those are the, the three. Now, Paul here is referring to the first use of the law. And the first use of the law is to show us that God is holy and that we are sinners. Another way to say it is, is the first use of the law is meant to condemn the sinner. Or to put it like Paul does a bit boldly, it's, it, it's meant to kill the sinner. That's why he says the letter referring to the law kills. And look, if you're going to understand the gospel, if you've ever understood the gospel, you have to understand the first use of the law. Now, turn to Romans chapter 3. Uh, and we're going we're gonna to camp out here. We're going to look at a few different places. And look, I know we always do a lot of flipping around. Here's my desire. When we go, and it might seem tedious how we're always looking, you know, at these verses and all this. We flip around. I, my desire is that as we look at this together, as I teach or preach, that you would get a sense of like, this is what God has said. And not just take my word for it. That you would see it bubbling up out of the text yourself. Because then it's going to last. Because who cares what I think, right? But this is the word of God. And let's see what it has to say for us. So, Romans chapter 3, verse 19, and this is, I just want to go through a few verses that are very clear about this first use of the law that shows us that God is holy and that we are sinners in need of a Savior. So Romans chapter 3, verse 19 and 20, it says this, Now we know that whatever the law says, 
it speaks of those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped. That means they're not able to justify themselves. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. And here it is. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So according to this passage, the purpose of the law is to bring knowledge of sin. That's the first use of the law, right? All right, now flip over to Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Romans chapter 5, verse 20. Paul writes this. This is crazy. The law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. I want to hone in on that first part. The law came in to increase the trespass. The trespass is another way of saying sin. So according to that verse, does the law make you sin more or less? According to that verse, the law came in to increase the trespass. The law makes you sin more. And look, you, you get this. The law actually provokes us to sin. For example, I'm going to give you a law right now. And you will, I'm, in, in giving you the law, I'm going to simultaneously create a desire in you to break that law. No one, for any circumstance, for the rest of this time that we're in the sanctuary, look at that wall. Everybody go ahead and look at it, because we all wanted to do it, right? Look, it just, the, the law, and in Romans 7, Paul writes that, that he has the sinful passions aroused by the law. He said, I wouldn't know what coveting is if the law didn't say do not covet. And what Paul's saying here is that the law came in to increase trespass. And that's because the law is meant to condemn us. Galatians 3 says the law puts us under the curse. That means death and hell. So, so this is what the law does. And look, I think a big problem in today's evangelism, in today's Bible teaching and proclaiming and preaching the word of God, there can be so much of a focus on God's love that we skip over God's holiness and our own guilt. And look, that's a big deal because God's love loses like the teeth and the punch and the power if you don't get God's holiness and your guilt. So there's, you miss something on God's love when you focus on God's love and you skip over God's holiness and our guilt. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He says, I do not believe that any man can preach the gospel who does not preach the law. Lower the law and you dim the light by which a man perceives his guilt. This is a very serious loss to the sinner rather than a gain. For it lessens the likelihood of his conviction and conversion. I say you have deprived the gospel of its ablest auxiliary. That means its most powerful weapon. When you have set aside the law... You have taken away from it the schoolmaster that is meant to bring men to Christ. They will never accept grace till they tremble before a just and holy law. Therefore, the law serves a most necessary purpose, and it must not be removed from its place. The law cuts into the core of evil. It reveals the seat of, of the malady that informs us and the leprosy that lies deep within. They must be slain by the law before they can be made alive by the gospel. So look, our understanding the gospel, our rejoicing in the gospel, means that we first need to tremble under the law. And look, you're, you're, the joy of your salvation is, is no doubt related to how much did you tremble before the law of God? And when you saw what God requires of man and you trembled and thought, guilty. If you don't have the joy of your salvation, if you feel like there's not much there, 
I don't think you've spent enough time with the law and what's required of you and your guilt. Because once we get that, once we get that, then the gospel can become something sweet. So flip over to Romans chapter 8. Because once we understand what the law can't do, then all of a sudden we need a Savior. And so Romans 8, 3 and 4 says this. Romans chapter 8, verse 3 and 4. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. So the law couldn't do something, right? So it could not do something, but God did what the law couldn't do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So three observations here. Number one, the law was unable to do something. The law is unable to save us or to justify us before God. It couldn't save us. It was never meant to save us. It's meant to condemn us, to kill us. But God sent his son in our likeness, and he did two things. These are the two other observations. The second thing, he condemned sin. Our punishment was spent on Jesus. So so the law is there to tell us what sin is, but it doesn't absorb our sin. You can't punish the law. It just is what it is. But Jesus was punished for us. And the second part, uh, the third observation is he fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law for us. So Jesus did what the law couldn't do. He, he took the punishment for us and he fulfilled all requirements for us. And look, this is how you're saved. You're not saved by asking Jesus in your heart. Unless when you say that, you mean this. You mean that Jesus died for your sins and that his righteousness is credited to you. That, that's how we're saved. That's the work of Jesus that the law is unable to accomplish. And the whole idea of the law is for us to look to Christ. The old covenant puts us under the law, and it exposes our guilt. And the new covenant gives us Christ with all his benefits, which include the punishment for sin and the righteous requirements of the law credited to our account. So there's the old covenant. There's the law, how that works. So let's talk more about the new covenant. And when Paul was talking about the new covenant, he contrasted it with the letter that kills and the spirit that gives life. So we're going to talk about the new covenant. We're going to talk about the spirit that gives life. I think this is all going to come together in a second. Uh, But but before I talk about the new covenant and the spirit, let me say this first about the law, because there's a place you can can kind of get off off here. Um, When it says the the law condemns and kills, we, we don't need to think that means the law is bad. I mean, it sounds bad, obviously, because it kills, condemns, and judges us. But the law is, is good and, and glorious. So Paul, in his letter to the Romans, when he's explaining this first use of the law, he, he knew that some could see it negatively. And that's why in Romans seven twelve he says this, So the law is holy, the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. So, so the law is good. The only problem with it is it shows us that we're bad, Right? But there's nothing wrong with the law, except it shows us we're bad. It's like you take a ruler and you draw a straight line, right? And and that straight line will just kind of show you the other line that's crooked. And there's nothing wrong with that line being straight, except that it exposes what's crooked. And that's what the law does with us. It just exposes us that we are crooked, that we are off, that we are sinful. And so in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul makes the case that the law is glorious. And, And he does this by referring to Moses when he received the law. He met with God, received the law, and after he met with with God, his face was shining. After encountering the glory of God, his face was shining. But there's something even better and more glorious than the law that was given to Moses. And so let's flip back to 2 Corinthians 3, 
And we're looking at verse chapter 3, verse 7 through 11. So there's something better and even more glorious than the law that was given to, to Moses that made his face shine when he encountered God with that. And we read about it in 2 Corinthians 3, 7 through 11. It says this, Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was, begin, which, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, like the first use of the law, right? The old covenant, the ministry of righteousness, we're alluding to the new covenant now, must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what, was what, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all, because the glory that surpasses it, for if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. So, so one way to understand the difference between the old covenant and new covenant is this. There's the ministry of condemnation, the law that shows you to be a sinner. And then there's the ministry of righteousness. And that's, the, that's talking about the, the new covenant. Because the new covenant is a ministry of righteousness because it doesn't condemn us, it changes us. And so now we've got to figure out what this new covenant is. So now flip over to Jeremiah chapter 31. If you go to the middle of your Bible, you have Psalms, and you're going to flip past some of the poetic books, get to Isaiah, then Jeremiah. So Jeremiah chapter 31, 31 to 34. And, and here Jeremiah is going to lay out the, the new covenant. So there's this thing to come. that's going to come when Jesus comes, by the way. And this is one of the, the, the hints of what this thing is. So Israel is under this, this code, this old covenant. And Jeremiah is saying there's going to come a day where it's going to be different. And they didn't quite understand it then. But when Christ came and the Holy Spirit came, we understand more now. So Jeremiah chapter 31 and we're going to look at verse 31 through 34. Jeremiah 31, 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, meaning the old covenant, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God. They shall be my people. No longer shall that one, each one teach his neighbor, saying to his brother, Know the Lord, for they shall know me from the least to the greatest, declaring the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. So what happens in the new covenant? It goes, the, the law goes from being an external thing written on stones to an internal thing written on the heart. So the law, rather than being an external thing that they hear about, will be a thing that is within them. And flip over, two books over, is Ezekiel. I want to look at another verse on there. This is where we're going to bring in the, the idea of the Spirit and the New Covenant, how this works. So you have Jeremiah, then five chapters of Lamentations, and then you have Ezekiel. In Ezekiel 36 this is one of the first verses I underlined in my Bible when I was starting to read the Bible and understand this. And, and this, in, in a lot of ways, changed my life. Ezekiel chapter 36, 26, and 27. And Ezekiel is talking about this new covenant. Ezekiel 36, verse 26 and 27 says this, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. 
So what does the Spirit cause us to do? To walk in God's statutes and to be, be careful to obey His rule. So the old covenant condemns us and even provokes us to sin, right? But the new covenant changes us from the inside out. Look, have you ever tried to tell someone how to do something that was easy and natural for you, but, but hard for them? Maybe with your job or school or something like that. There's a concept that you get and you're trying to explain it and, and you're giving them, like, you can maybe even hear, I'm telling you this and you can just tell it's not getting through, right? And it, like, for, for me, it's with like telling kids how to tie shoes. Like, I don't, there's a, at some point there's a bunny ear and a loop and you just do it. You know what I mean? Like, it's one of those things, I don't know how to tell someone to tie their shoes, but I can just do it. And so here's what, what the new covenant is like. There's almost a sense where there's written instructions. That's one thing. And then there's me entering a, a child's mind and, and being able to tie the shoes just through them. Just don't worry about it. I'm just going to enter you and I'm going to tie them for you. And in a sense, that's what the new covenant, the Holy Spirit, Christ in us does. That's, that's the new covenant. Rather than the law being external, the law becomes internal. Or, or what if you're trying to tell someone to eat healthy? You're just giving them a list. You know, it's good to eat healthy for reasons A, B, or C. But look, here's the deal. When it comes down to it, they like pizza, chocolate, and candy. And that's just not changing. You can tell me all you want about how good it is to eat healthy. I still like to eat what I like to eat. So here's what needs to happen. They need to change what they like to eat. <laughs> like, how do you change taste buds? Well, in a sense, you don't. But under the new covenant, that's what's happening. It's new desires. How do you change what you want? Because look, ultimately, we're all going to do what we want to do. You've done that all your life. As, as a child, in, in adolescence, and as an adult, you've always done what you want to do. When it comes down to it, that's what you do every day, what you want to do. And so how do we change what we want to do? That's the new covenant. The Holy Spirit, Christ in you, changing your desires. The law is no longer external. It's internal. This is what the new covenant does. God giving us his spirit changing our desires by writing the law on our heart. And look, the Spirit of God will really ruin your ability to enjoy sin. And the Spirit can give us this almost unexplainable desire for the things of God and the ways of God, where you're just a bit hungry for it. You just kind of want it. And this is what Paul is getting at with the Corinthians. He's saying, y'all want a letter of recommendation from me? Okay, sure. How about the letter written on your heart? How about the transformation that you've seen on your heart for the things of God? The new covenant, the law of God written on their heart is proof enough. And this is how Paul views his ministry. He is a minister of the new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit. And that means that Paul's ministry is supernatural. And look, if you're a Christian, that's a supernatural event. It's not just a logical thing you came up with. It's God giving you his spirit and changing your heart. Look at 2 Corinthians 3, verse 4 through 6. Paul says this, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So, so Paul is not sufficient for the task of writing the law of God on someone's heart. On, on giving them the Holy Spirit. But God has made him sufficient for that task, though it isn't coming from Paul. It's coming from God because it's a supernatural act when someone turns to Christ. And when a person comes to Christ, they first need to know their need, their need of Christ from the first use of the law, right? 
and they need the veil removed from their hearts to see Christ. Look at uh, verse 14 to 16 in chapter 3. Paul writes, But their minds were hardened, speaking of the Jews, for to this day when they read the old covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. So Paul is writing about the Jews who were hardened by the gospel. And the only way they would see Christ, the only way you will see Christ, is if the veil is removed to see the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And when one does that, the veil is removed. That is why we need to preach Christ, why we need to preach the gospel, the new covenant, And then, with a heart that has the law written on it, we consider the law a joy and a delight to obey because we can obey out of the heart because God has transformed our heart. He's written the law on our heart. So going back to my question earlier, do you live more like you're under the old covenant than the new? If you're living more like you're under the old covenant, your, your approach to Christianity is primarily behavioral, right? You're trying to do the things you ought to do and trying not to do the things you shouldn't do. And if somebody asks you, what, what, what's Christianity all about? What's church all about? Man, just trying to be good. Just straight and narrow, right? And look, if, if, if your primary idea of what the church, Christianity, the gospel is about is about behavior, then you're living as if you're under the old covenant. And when you focus on the law... If you're, if you're living this way, if you're focused on the law, if your approach to Christianity to God is more behavioral than anything, well, if you're a high achiever, then, then you might become a bit legalistic. And if you're a bit like that, then you might be proud, um, a bit judgmental, and you're going to struggle with other people, and other people are going to struggle with you, right? But, but let's say you're not a high achiever. Let's say you feel like you're continually falling short, and you have a view of Christianity that's mostly behavioral, and you're mostly not doing well. Well, you know what you can do is you can make the gospel and grace, and you can twist it into mean something that, you know, obedience doesn't really matter. You know, we're, we're sin abounds, grace abounds all the more, so my sin really makes the gospel look better. And you just kind of have this view of the gospel that, that's kind of removed this idea of obedience, of the law of God being written on your heart. And you assume anybody else who really is walking with the Lord, they're, they're just faking it, right? Or they're just like, like hyper-legalistic and, and don't understand the gospel. But, but if we shouldn't focus on behavior— if we shouldn't focus on the law, then what should we focus on? We'll look at verse 18 in chapter 3. Well, Paul writes this. He says, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So we need to be more, fo- more focused on the glory of God. And as later we're going to see in the face of Jesus Christ, where God's glory is shown the most is through Christ, his life and his death and his work. And we need to be more focused on God and the glory of God through how he's been revealed in Christ than our obedience to God's law. Because focusing on the glory of God is what transforms us. And what made the face of Moses shine was that he beheld the glory of God and it transformed him. And the work of the Spirit trans, uh, transforms us from, into the image of Jesus from one degree, degree of glory to another by beholding the glory of God. Verse 18 again, We all with unveiled face beholding the glory of God are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Now that last v- sentence, For this comes from the Lord 
who is the Spirit. So what comes from the Lord who is the Spirit? Look at it. Beholding the glory of the Lord and being transformed from one degree of glory to another. So beholding the glory of God in a transform, transformational way is a work of the Spirit. And, and, and when we focus on the law, we miss what the law is pointing us to. It's to pointing us to Christ, to the, to the gospel, to the glory of God. And that's what transforms us. And of course, this doesn't make us dismiss the law because we're focused on the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished for us. It doesn't make us forget the law. You know why? The law is written on our hearts. Like, we won't be okay not following God. We'll be miserable. A, 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 a Christian who is intentionally disobedient is not a happy Christian, right? There's just no way. Because it is, it's not because it's not fun or anything like that. The issue is because the Spirit of God is in you, and you can't make peace with it. And you know what obedience through the Spirit should feel like? You know what it should feel like? It should feel like freedom. Look at verse 17. Now, the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And look, if obedience to you doesn't feel like freedom, then you're doing it wrong. Your motivation's off, the reason you're doing it, what you're doing, something's off. There's not a problem with the law. There's not a problem with the gospel. There's a problem with you. But whatever's motivating you to follow God is off if it doesn't feel like freedom. Because with the law written on our heart, it's what we most want to do. And sin is what we don't want to do. So look, if, if, if obedience to you feels more like slavery, if you're burdened down with the law, th then you're living as if you're under the old covenant. And if it feels like freedom, then that's new covenant living, that, that we are just living out the desires of a heart that God has put in there. So to live under the new covenant is to behold the glory of God and to live out the desires of your heart, which have been changed because the law of God has been written on our heart by the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's what will transform us from one degree of glory to another. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you now and we tremble at what the law requires of us that we cannot fulfill. And we thank you that while the law was weakened by our flesh, uh, what we could not do, you did in sending your son to fulfill the law for us by taking our punishment, by fulfilling all righteousness, that we can believe on his work and be saved, uh, and that you go beyond that. You don't just mark us as justified, but you even give us your spirit and you write your law on our heart. You enable us to follow you and, for, and to do so with great joy. And so would you work in us? Would you help us to... Behold the glory of the Lord and Holy Spirit, would you transform us from one degree of glory to another. In Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen.